Because I haven't been preaching for you the last couple of Sunday mornings, I thought I'd take a moment at the outset just to remind you of uh, where we've been the last couple of months in our thinking in our Sunday morning services. We began earlier in the autumn with a short series in the book of Titus, and we learned there about a call on the lives of God's people to live good lives. And the reason Paul urges us to live in that way is because then people are attracted to our Savior, to Jesus, when they see the difference that he's made in our lives. When we finished with Titus, we decided to follow on with that line of thinking. Well, how's that going to happen? How are we going to live good lives? How's that, that kind of transformation going to happen in our lives? And we've been following a, a rather... Uh, loosely based series around the title How God Makes Us Good. One of the things we thought about one week was how there's a, a strand of teaching right through the Bible that God wants us to be like Him. And both of our readings picked up on that today. We are made in the image of God. We're to be imitators of God. And then the last time we were together in this series three weeks ago, we we notice that there's a real lack of intentionality about how most of us, most of the time, try and live this out. We're inclined to be very passive in our lives with God. We expect God just to, to change us. We, we sit back, we come along to church services, we play our part in church organizations, and we imagine that somehow God is going to change us through that. We're inclined to call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ without seriously trying to do most of what Jesus did or living the way in which Jesus lived. Just in the last couple of weeks since I I preached the last time for you, I was struck by a comment of John Stott on this whole subject of, of intentionality. He says, there is no passivity in the attainment of holiness. We don't just sit there and do nothing expecting God to do it all. I want to pick up where we have left off and continue to develop this with you this morning. Jesus wants us to be like him. We're his disciples, you see. We're his apprentices. He wants us to learn from him how to live. He's given us his word and he's given us his spirit. And now Jesus wants us to live the kind of life that he would live if he were in our shoes. I wonder if you've ever understood that. You're not to live the life that Jesus lived in a culture of 2,000 years ago. No, we're to try and, and live the life that Jesus would live if he were in our shoes today, if he was placed in your family, in your workplace, with your network of relationships, what would he make of that? That's that's where we want to go. That's the life that we have been called to live. Now, it seems to me that if we want to be disciples of Jesus Christ and we want to understand better what that might actually mean, then... It wouldn't be a bad idea to have a look at what Jesus did with his disciples. That seems to me like a good starting point. How did Jesus spend the time with the 12 people whom he was trying to to make his apprentices, 
whom he was trying to form in his likeness. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to ask ourselves this morning, what practices or habits were important to Jesus in the community uh, that he was leading? And I think the best way to answer that question is simply to read the Gospels. Now, we're not going to do that this morning. We're not going to read a whole Gospel, or certainly not all four of them. But we're going to skim through Mark's Gospel with this question in our minds. What kind of things did Jesus do with his disciples? And at this point, Scott, if you could maybe put up the first of the, the slides. I'll keep a, a list of, of slides here as we, as we go. The first thing that was important to Jesus as he worked with his disciples was friendship. He never did anything alone. Occasionally we're told Jesus went off to the hills to pray together, but most of the time he did everything with his disciples. So that's, that's interesting, and we should notice that. Mark talks far more about what they did, Jesus and his disciples, than about what he, Jesus himself, did. So whenever... Jesus went to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. The disciples were there. They saw that. They were with him at the transfiguration, at least some of them. So they saw Jesus meeting face to face with his father. They encountered fear with Jesus. They went through failure with Jesus. He just took them through everything. The whole of life, everything that life threw at them for those three years. Now it seems to me that if we're going to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, then we should expect friendship or relationality to play an important part in that. So there's a first thing. There's a second thing, hospitality. Sometimes it's the small things in a Bible passage that carry a lot of the meaning. So in Mark chapter 1, by the way, if you want to have Mark's gospel open in front of you, I'm just going to fire out references. It's a, this is the quick fire round this morning. Um, there'll be stuff. Feel free to flick and, and check things as I go, but I'm not going to be dwelling on anything for any great length of time. In Mark 1.29, Mark tells us, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. So that's in chapter 1. Chapter 2, verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. And there are loads more references where these came from. Jesus and his disciples spent loads of time in homes. If you read the Gospels, you'll see that. And that's important. You see, to allow someone into your home is to allow them into your private space. It's far more intimate to meet with somebody in your home than in a, in a cafe or in a church building. To allow someone into your home, seems to me it's to invite them into your life properly. I think practicing hospitality is one of those things in life that can keep us real. You see, we might try to say, you know, I live a simple life. But when somebody comes into your home, when they have a look at how you've decorated your home and what place... Um, you know, stuff has in your life, they'll soon make an assessment, a very down-to-earth assessment, of whether that claim of a, sim a simple life is actually true. There's something about our home that speaks volumes about who we are. 
Outside the home, I think it's easy to pretend, but inside, people see a lot more. Again, it's important that we notice the place of hospitality of homes in the life of Jesus in this community. This is the kind of life that Jesus called his disciples to live. The third thing then that I noticed in Mark's gospel, Jesus and his disciples spent a lot of time eating. I was quite pleased about this. Um, It probably has never struck you as a core part of the, the disciples' calling. But meals, time and time again, Jesus and the disciples are around the dinner table together. So we've already mentioned them having the meal in Luke's house, or sorry, in Levi's house. There was another meal in uh, chapter 14. We're told of the meal in the house of Simon the leper. Uh, And we also know from the other Gospels that Jesus and his disciples called in with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus uh, and often got a good feed there. Think of the Lord's Supper. The one time that Jesus told his disciples, right, fellas, I want you to meet together. And this is the way I want you to do it. It's a meal. He doesn't say Sunday morning service. He doesn't say prayer meeting. He doesn't say Kirk session. He says, get together and have a meal and do it to remember me. You see, meals, folks, and and you know this from your own experience, they're vibrant places. They're places where we relax and begin to share what's on our mind and on our hearts. They're, They're less pressured and less formal than so many of our other meetings and interactions. I think that's why Jesus was so often at the meal table. Because more than anyone else, he wanted to be real and wanted people to be real with him. Meals, they're important for disciples of Jesus Christ. The fourth thing that we notice there in in Mark's gospel is mission. Jesus sent the guys out to do the same kind of work that he was doing, uh, to preach and to heal and to drive out demons. You can read about in chapter 3 and also in chapter 6. You get the impression reading of these accounts that he wants to send them out to places where they're going to be much less comfortable, to places where they have to rely on God, to places where if they don't rely on God, they're going to fall flat on their faces. Our church community too, I think, needs to enter into the mission of Jesus Christ if we really are serious about calling ourselves his disciples. You see, we gather for worship, for Bible study, for prayer, and to listen to talks like this one. But we need to take opportunities to go out with the gospel into our neighborhood and to the other side of the world, just whatever way that works itself out. I don't think we'll learn all that a disciple could learn until we're doing that. But it wasn't all activism for Jesus and his disciples. Time and again, uh, their, their periods of mission and active service were interrupted by times of retreat and rest. So that's the fifth thing that, that we notice in Mark's gospel. In chapter 6, verse 31, we read of a time when the disciples had, had just come back from a short-term mission. And Jesus says to them, 
Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. We need to recover this in the church, I think. Successful churches, by and large, are evaluated as being successful because there's a lot going on. Because they never stop. Because it's one endless whirring wheel. Jesus was different. He he seemed to find a way to work, but also to retreat and to rest. Maybe that's something we need to think about in, in our church life here. The sick thing I, I noticed there in Mark's gospel was Jesus teaching. And, and of course that shouldn't surprise you. Jesus had the 12 around him and he, and he tried to teach them uh, all that they needed to know about being his disciples. The thing that would surprise you, the fact that he taught wouldn't surprise you. But the way in which he taught I think might. Mark chapter 4 is a good example. Jesus begins by telling the, the famous parable of the sower. And the disciples don't get it, so they come and ask him questions about that. And Jesus responds. And all of a sudden, the teaching ends up not being a, not being a, a sermon where, where it's him speaking at them. But it becomes a conversation where they start to interact more. He's got the conversation going by, by teaching and, and by giving them a sermon, if you like. But they don't just sit there. They don't just listen to the talk and take notes and shake his hand on the way out and say, nice sermon, Jesus. Instead, they, they say, what did that mean? How would that work? How could we really do that? And you get that sense in the Gospels all the time that Jesus teaches and then the conversation begins. And maybe if we were to replicate Jesus' disciple-making ministry here in our church life at Kirkpatrick, we'd be looking for ways to make our learning experiences more interactive. Now, Jesus never abandoned the sermon. He, He taught. Jesus didn't abandon the sermon, and I, I don't think we will anytime soon. But what about the questions? that flow whenever we have heard God's word? What about the, how would that work? Or how could I do that in my workplace tomorrow? We need to make sure in church life that the opportunities are there for that all to happen. That's what Jesus did. That's how he taught. The seventh thing that that we notice there in in Mark's gospel is Jesus' focus on, on scripture on God's word. For him, of course, it was the Old Testament. But so often, whenever a question came up, when the disciples were stuck or, or one of the religious leaders came to him and said, Jesus, what about this? What about that? He'd just quick as a flash say, well, what does God's word say? What did Moses say? What did the prophets say? So there are all sorts of examples uh, throughout Mark's gospel where you find Jesus saying, what do the scriptures say? That's what we should be teaching in our church life and also trying to learn to become people who when we're confronted with an issue or a problem, our natural reaction is to say, what does God's word say about that? What are the the biblical resources that help me to answer that question? 
So we need to be learning. We need to be training our minds to have a biblical worldview. We see everything through the lenses of what we have learned in God's word. We make all our decisions in that way. That's how Jesus taught his disciples to think scripture. There's an eighth thing, and we're we're nearly finished. Observation. Jesus spent a lot of time just watching what was going on around him and then chatting to the disciples about it. In the last verses of chapter 12, there's the the famous incident of the widow's mite. That happened just because Jesus and his disciples were nearby in the temple when a woman came and threw a tiny amount of money into the offering. Jesus saw it and started to talk to his disciples about it. And then straight away at the beginning of chapter 13, there's another observation and another conversation. The disciples are looking up at the architecture of the temple. They're saying, wow, isn't it brilliant? And Jesus takes it as an opportunity to say, yeah, but let me tell you about the temple. Let me tell you about its, its meaning now. And let me tell you about its future. And if you know the life of Jesus well, you'll know that he does this all the time. He's passing a fig tree and he uses that as an opportunity to talk about a judgment of God on his people. He sees a little child on the fringe of the crowd he's talking to and he's saying, see that child? That's that's the kind of person who's qualified to come into the kingdom of God, to enter into what I'm doing. Jesus had this this way where he he saw everything that was going on in the world around him and and was able to comment on it, uh, to, to bring to light the wisdom of God on the subject. Folks, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to learn to do that. And it's something that I love to try and do in my preaching, and if you've been around for long enough, you'll know that we do this occasionally. We take a very everyday part of life and we try to observe and comment on it. So we've thought together about our workplaces. We've thought together about family life. We've thought together about technology, about our neighborhoods, about hospitality. We we thought recently together about death. We, We need to see this life. And we need to know what God says about it so that we can live it well as disciples of Jesus. That's a very disciple-making activity to be involved in. It's, It's just like what Jesus did. A ninth thing that we notice time and time again in the Gospels is that Jesus and his community were very focused on the poor and on the suffering. So in chapter 1, Jesus goes to visit Simon's dying mother in law In chapter 2, Jesus heals those with physical disabilities. In chapter 5, he comes alongside the bereaved. In chapter 7, he accepts a woman from an ethnic minority. In chapter 8, he heals a blind man. So these are the kind of people with whom Jesus spends his time. Let me read a paragraph for you from a book that I was using to prepare for this morning's sermon. The author says... It's remarkable when affluent, educated Christians begin to discover the difference they can make by using their skills to get involved in the lives of those who are very different from them. And the writer then goes on to talk about an American megachurch. 
that discovered the liberation of turning itself around from a community that merely sucked people into its own life to one that encouraged those people to get involved in homeless projects, mentoring young offenders, and giving advice to unemployed job seekers. Isn't that brilliant? How else, friends, are we ever going to learn the capacity for compassion and mercy unless we go and do these things? I'm coming to the conclusion in my own life that praying that God will give us a heart for the poor is not enough. Because we've already been told and it's already been demonstrated to us that we should be among the poor and the needy. Maybe we need to stop the prayerfulness and the anguished head-scratching in this regard and take a step of obedience 